Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of HDE Podcast. I'm your host, Ron Sosa. For those who have just tuned in and listened to me for the very first time, congratulations, you have just found my logbook. In all honesty, anywhere I tend to post videos and audios tend to be kind of my view of a logbook or a digital format of a logbook. Uh, you are going to be listening to pretty much anything I tend to enjoy, and that's usually contract work, robotics, hardware, software, and even a little bit of web development here and there. And if you enjoy those topics, great. If you don't, you're probably going to be bored for what I'm talking to you about. So, yeah... Yeah, if I start talking to you about my projects that tend to include a lot of those stuff, then at least you know anyways. But do stick with me, because I do like to believe I'm actually kind of entertaining. I think I am anyway. Now, for those who have been listening to me from the very beginning and in some regard kind of enjoy my podcast, you probably noticed there's quite a few things that have changed, not just the audio. I'm going to give you a hint. If you're listening to me through the... Well, if you're listening to my podcast as an audio, I'm actually recording myself as a video as well. Separate sources. So, I'm, you know, I'm actually recording the audio and then dubbing the audio on the video. But anyway, you, I, you get the idea. Now, the reason why I'm doing this whole new format is I figured, well, if I'm going to ch- if I'm gonna go ahead and change all the setup that I have for recording the audio, I might as well try and play around with something different. And I wanted to try and record myself as a video. Now, the reason being is for a couple of reasons, actually, I should say. The first one is that I've actually, I actually kind of started liking the idea of watching some of the podcasts like such as Tested and even the Radio 1, which is kind of the UK radio station. Uh, I've been enjoying the fact that they record themselves while, while they're live on air or Tested while they're doing their podcast. I like the idea because you can see where I'm at. You can kind of get a better, better picture as to what's around me when I'm talking to you. And often when I do this podcast, I tend to kind of draw inspiration from what's around me. And I do like the fact that I get to pick things up and show it off on the cam for anybody who actually wants to see what I'm doing. But to be honest, I'm liking the idea that people get to both see what I look like and more importantly, get to see the room that I'm in so they're aware of the reason why the podcast sounds like this. Hopefully they get the picture. And also, to be honest, and this is the final reason, is that whenever I release a podcast, I always do a video version of the same podcast to release on YouTube. Usually, I should say, it's easy. I just basically stick a static picture on the, on the, on the, on the video and play the back, the audio in the background. And that's fine, but I kind of figured that a lot of people aren't really going to be listening to that because, you know, to be honest, who goes to listen to my, my kind of podcast in YouTube if there isn't anything other than just a static image? So I figured I must just record myself and you get to see stuff. And I'm, I am hoping to improve the, the, the everything really. Um, one thing that I'm not sure I'm happy about is the, uh, well, is the location of the camera. I'm not sure if this is a good view for anything really. I kind of feel like I'm being talked down if you, if you are picturing yourself on the other side of the camera and I'm kind of lowered. Uh, but it's kind of the best place that I was able to put the camera anyway. So if you do take, if you do get a chance to look over, do head over to see the video so you can kind of see what I mean. Um, it was kind of hard to try and pick a, a position really because I, if I, if I could do it behind the monitors, what, what it is is that I've got two big windows in this room. Now you would think the more light the better, but actually, uh, with the placements of the light makes a difference. And if basically all the source of the light is coming from one location, it kind of ruins the. Well, to be honest, it just whitewashes everything else. I kind of feel like whenever I put the the camera on, and I put it facing so the the, the light source in a particular location, everything in the background because the room is almost all white, it kind of ends up drowning me and making me look a bit weird. So I. I, th- I feel I feel like this is the best place to put it, and I also got a little spotlight on the side, a little um, LED lamp uh, on the not LED, LED lamp, it's um, a studio lamp on the side. It's LED, but it's a studio lamp. 
uh, next to the camera to try and counteract the light that's coming from my other side. So it's it's kind of weird. I might try and do a view of the of the office slash lab one day. But anyway, that enough of that. So yeah, I figured I'd just change a few things, and also the previous format that I had, the way I kind of did an intro, talked to you stuff about, you know, kind of talked about the stuff that I wanted to talk to you about, I was kind of feeling a little bit, I don't know, it felt like something was missing. Um, for those who aren't aware of what I'm on about, or haven't had a chance to look at my previous episodes, or listen to my previous episodes, I should say, um, I, usually, I used to just start everything with a weird kind of um, cheesy intro in the hope that you can kind of get an idea of what I'm going to be talking to you about. So, for example, uh, when I talked about, um, when I did the last episode, which was to do with data logging, I did this weird intro about star, uh, star date logs and kind of tried to draw a joke at the fact that, you know, Star Trek, they all start their logs with star date, blah, blah, blah. And I figured, well, you know, they're logging their day whilst we'll use that as an intro. And it was really bad. It really was. It's not a problem, though. Now the uh recent so I've changed all that so I'm not really going to be giving you a weird intro I'm just going to be saying hello and welcome and introduce the podcast to myself and maybe I might even drop the whole I'm your host for a social thing because to be honest if you're listening to my podcast and I'm the only person talking to you or you're listening to you probably are going to know who I am anyway and if you don't then you probably can go to the show notes and pick it up from there anyway uh anyway we'll see I I'm kind of enjoying everything right now I'm enjoying the format and stuff now, with regards to the audio, the reason why I wanted to spend some more money on that, trying to improve on that, is because, to be honest, the previous setup sucked. Uh, I know I mentioned this, it, it really did. Um, I was actually using a dynamic lapel mic, uh, recording straight to a portal recorder. In fact, it was the Zoom H1, which I have around here in the lab. Um, and it, it was fine, but the microphone wasn't really made for the kind of setup that I am in now. If you... If you t- do take a time to look at the YouTube video, you see it's a small room, very kind of echoey. It's not as bad considering that I've got carpet and curtains and stuff like that. Um, but it could be worse. I mean, it, it definitely was worse before when I was doing recordings on the previous place that I lived in, which was a very echoey room and it was really bad. But the problem is with that microphone, it was picking everything quite evenly. It was picking up my voice, it was picking up the noise of the computer fans, it was picking up the echoes, it was picking up the noise within the room, and you know, the list goes on and on. The worst thing really was picking up the sounds that was coming from outside, you know, the neighbors and stuff like that, whenever they were cutting the grass during summer. It was a pain, it really was. Um, which meant that I always have to try and figure out a time to do the recording because I was trying to always trying to find the f- quietest of time to do this podcast and in all honesty that's that's quite difficult on its own anyway mostly with the fact that I have to do country work you know that's my day job and whenever a client wants me to do something I have to stop all the little side projects to make sure I work on there because that's actually a paying project or paying gig where with the whole doing a podcast this is free you know personal time kind of thing all that sort of stuff but now, uh, it took me a while because I was trying to figure out uh, what microphone to go with. And in all honesty, I'm not an expert in any audio setup. I'm, you know, like most people doing YouTube videos, you sort of learn as you go along. Unless you still happens to be your daytime job and you know quite a bit about it or you're quite, uh, you know, there's various other things. But I personally, I'm not, you know, I'm not a big nerd about audio t- stuff. And I was kind of trying to figure out what was, what's a good setup. One that gives me enough flexibility in the future whenever I want to do stuff. But at the same time, kept things simple because I didn't really want to be spending too much time tweaking sensate settings. Let me say that again. Tweaking settings. Um, for example, I, I, I was looking at the option of getting myself a audio mixer with a condenser mic with an XLR output and phantom power and all that sort of setup that I wanted to get. 
because I kind of like the idea that it was going to be enough settings that I can get to play with and maybe get some with the um, compressor effects so I can try and make my voice sound a bit more even right out the bat. And I, I thought about it and I realized that I'm one of those people who just can't stop playing with settings. Uh, I, I'm going to struggle not to change the sensitivity of the current mic that I have between shows, let alone a mixer with so many different knobs to t- kind of start tweaking to t- try and get the right setting every single time. I, I'm just, I'm going to be one of those people who's just going to look at it and say, oh, but maybe I can adjust this a little bit more. And I, no, I, you know, figured, I figured I'd just get it out of the way before I start having to kind of deal with devil's advocate with that sort of stuff. So. Off he went, kind of thing. And I thought, okay, so what about if I just get a microphone with a built-in USB cable, you know, a USB output, I mean. And this way I got this microphone. Um, so the reviews seemed pretty good, actually. Um, they were saying, like, it's kind of like a studio uh, microphone, and I, I'm doing the money ears for those who are not looking at the video. Um, yeah, it's supposed to be studio quality. Uh, arguably, though, for the price point, that's a big giveaway that it isn't actually a studio quality microphone. It's as good as you're going to get for that price range. And I, in all honesty, I, I've not bought a, a, a different set of microphone to do a comparison. I didn't bother doing that. Um, I was trying to take, I was trying to take, uh, well, I was trying to make the right choice the first time because I don't really fancy wasting any money of constantly going between setups. And, uh, anyway, it just, you know, one of those things anyway. So, so I got this microphone connected up and as soon as I had it all set up, it sounded worse than my previous lapel mic. Uh, it sounded, it was noisier. It, it, it barely can pick up my voice. I, basically, I, the default settings were quite low. It was too low. And then I found out something kind of interesting about this microphone, uh, which uh, if I hadn't realized, if I didn't spot this and I didn't see something about it online, I probably would already send this one back and go for another one. But it turns out that this USB microphone, uh, app, uh, outputs in stereo. But you would think, okay, is output in stereo, then, okay, both channels are going to be playing the same thing because really it's just one microphone built into the condenser. You know, it's only one condenser, uh, um, you know, you bought a condenser, you would expect that the sound source would be, both, would be output in both, um, both, um, channels. It turns out to be not the case. Uh, one channel is used for the, uh, uh, pre-gain of the microphone and the second channel is the, uh, final gain, the post-gain. Is that the right? Is that the right term? So you get the signal, it goes through one amplifier, you get the output of that in one channel, and then goes through the final stage, or the final, yeah, is that gain stage, final gain stage? It's been a while since I've dealt with on pumps and stuff and amplifiers. Um, but yeah, you get the output of both the pre and the uh, post uh, amplifier, and that's what you get from the from the USB channel. So if you're recording for something like, if you're recording using something like Audacity, you have to make sure you set Audacity to mono, and... To be quite honest, I don't know if this is standard between audio, uh, between recording devices or in the industry, but whenever you set it to mono, it picks the left channel on a microphone. Uh, and when I looked at the user manual for the microphone, that's what they were suggesting, make sure that it's mono and you select the left channel. So I couldn't really find anywhere on Audacity to change between channels, but I was just happy the fact that it picked the correct one, the left channel. Uh, so I'm probably not going to chase that up any further if anybody have any more information about that whether the left mono channel is always a standard output then uh, do let me know uh, but uh, yeah it's a learning it's a learning thing but yeah so once i figured that out and i started playing with the gain suddenly like the moment you went from stereo to mono the output was 
impressive. It was great. It was way better than what I had before. And then I was able to up the 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 gain on the microphone. And bam, there we go. You can pick up my voice. It wasn't it, it picked up my voice. It wasn't picking up the noise from the computer or, or the echo uh, of the room. Uh, well, it, it is picking up the echo of the room, but I'm quite, I'm close enough to the microphone that it isn't as obvious. I don't think anyway. I'm pretty certain if I was to put acoustic foams in this room, uh, the quality would be even better. Even better, but. I'm not really going to waste any time or money on that, to be honest. Or at least not until this podcast makes any difference to anybody. Uh, but, you know, for my rambles and my logbook shenanigans, then this is good enough for me, I, I'd say anyway. For the time being, I say. So, yes, yeah, so I did that. Uh, but then, to be honest, it, was, it wasn't just the fact that it's a better microphone than a lapeled one. It's also the pickup pattern of the condenser that also made a big difference. Uh, the dynamic one, as I mentioned originally, that picks up sounds from all around the microphone. And I was like, okay, I, I knew different mics had different pickup patterns. I didn't think uh, it was going to make that much of a difference. Uh, I figured if the lapel mic was close enough to my to the source, i.e. my voice, then I can reduce the, the, the sensitivity so it's not picking up everything as much. Well, yeah, that okay, that's fair, but I think you do still need a very good room for that to be a good effect. With the uh, condenser mic, uh, the pickup pattern that I have is basically means that it's very good at picking up sound directly in front of the microphone, but from the sides or the back, it's not so good. It's way. Um, I, I do have the kind of. I, I'll put it on the show notes so you can actually see the um, uh, the bolt. Is it the bolt? Uh, the bolt. It's been a while since I've done this. Again, not an audio um, uh, engineer. I'm an electronic engineer. I don't do much in audio. I'm more of a digital. Uh, kind of side of things and coding so so do you know bear with me when i'm screwing up this uh, screwing up all these names now so the pickup pattern is uh cardioid hyper and i'm sure i screwed the name up on there uh so as i said it's very good at picking up what's in front of it but the uh the drop-off zone for the sides and the back is quite tight uh because this is a hyper one it's even better uh, at not picking up sound from the sides with a little bit of sacrifice of increasing what you know a little bit of a sacrifice of actually picking up what's in directly behind it so you do have to make sure that what's behind the microphone uh it's quiet or at least you're not getting too much of a reflection uh in my case it was perfect it's not picking up the computer fan it's not picking up the echo as much in this room so uh that's going to work out quite well and more importantly it's not picking up the sound from outside the room so within the house and the outside the neighbor so basically i mean it's a long-winded explanation but i can finally start recording when i want to start recording within reason of course if you have somebody outside uh playing house music you know a party outside then you know yeah you you do kind of have to work around that but for most normal noises people parking up people going into their houses neighbors chatting away walking the dogs fine no issue but perfectly fine um and then with the sound within the house as well perfectly fine i can deal with that so i I have a much better chance of uh, have an increased chance of being able to record the podcast versus what i had before Uh, and also means that i'll be able to do my videos as well so this is kind of a test between that anyway anyway enough about that i've been talking to you about 40 minutes about audio i'm sure a lot of you find that kind of annoying let me talk about some stuff that i've actually been doing something more uh, more in topic I, i would say so what I've been up to, uh, so those who've been waiting to hear another episode of mine probably really realized that it's been over a month and a half since I released any videos and audio, uh, oh, it's not audio, podcasts. And that's because obviously we've been on holiday, or we've, been, we've had the Christmas period, we've had the New Year's period, uh, basically the good old long holiday from everything. And the thing is, the problem I have is that, and kind of what made this whole suggestion take even longer, 
I do contract work, and unfortunately, whenever I go away on holiday, I, I have to spend quite a bit of extra time uh, coming back to settle everything back to normal in a stable manner. I, I have to chase clients up, I have to let them know that I'm back from holiday, I have to try and get their projects up and running again, I have to kind of speak to clients to, to remind them that what we got to be doing up, what we have to do up to, well, what, we, what we still have to do, and meetings after meetings, and emails after emails, and usually it tends to add up between uh, two to three weeks uh, in some, in worst case scenario, I mean, I've had it before where it took almost four weeks um, to finally get everything up and running from a particular client because that was a long ongoing project and blah, blah, blah. Um, so yeah, that took a while, and until, while I'm doing that, I obviously can't do any podcast. And regardless how good the setup is, I have to, you know, make sure that I focus on that, get that up and running. But yeah, it wasn't too bad though. This time it took longer than I expected, but yeah, I'm back anyway. I'm doing podcast, and yeah, we should all be good. Um, but during that time, I actually have had some free time to do some of my own personal stuff. Because after all, I did actually go on holiday. I finally got a chance to finish off a project uh, or start a project that I've been dying to do and finish it off at the same time. Uh, and it was the animated Santa Claus. For those who are aware of my YouTube channel, you probably have seen the video on that. Uh, during Christmas, I decided to try and animate or create a little animated uh, Santa Claus that sings to you and tells you occasional jokes here and there. Um, I managed to do that because I've, I've, I thought the reason why I finally got around to doing that is because uh, one of this well. It, the subscription service that I'm signed up to, which is the Bopport uh, monthly club um, project subscription that I'm signed up to, uh, he sent out, or Saar from that from Bopport, sent out a board on November, I think it was, which pretty much had all the electronics that I needed to do the Santa Claus. So I figured, well, I don't have to reinvent the wheel, I can just use the electronics on that, uh, rather than trying to spin my own, and just focus more on the mechanical stuff, and that's what uh, brought up that chance of doing that. And so the hardest part of that particular project was me trying to uh, try out this new software that I've been dying to, to use, which is Fusion 360. For those who aren't aware of what Fusion 360 or much about uh, 3D CADs and stuff like that, a Fusion 360 is a software you can use to model parts. Now, it's, it's similar to some of the other stuff, such as SolidWorks or 123Design, which is the same people that do Fusion 360. Uh, but the difference is that this is more of a professional tool that you have the chance to also use uh, without having to pay for a license. So it's uh, so they've got a lot of licenses that you can use that allow you to use it for free. So for, op- for open source projects, uh, maker projects, hobbyists, students, it's free to use. For small companies such as myself, Myself, um, as long as I'm not making X amount, I think it's like hundred thousand, something like that. Uh, I don't have to pay a license. I'm, I can still use the free license to do all my development. So, and even to be honest, and even if I do have to pay a license, the the cost of that uh, of Fusion 360 per month is a monthly subscription. Unfortunately, it's like something like fifty or sixty dollars, or maybe even hundred twenty dollars. That's still a lot cheaper than uh, SolidWorks is. Period. Like with SolidWorks, the cheapest um, um, license for a corporation is like something like ten to fifteen grand or something along those lines, and even then, it's per seat. Uh, so it's insane. And unfortunately, I all almost all the clients that I deal with, I tend to use well, not all, but the ones that I do mechanical stuff for, I'm always having to use uh, SolidWorks for that. And it's always been kind of downside because I always wanted to kind of release some projects. Cause some clients uh, are happy with me to release some projects as open source. But unfortunately, with SolidWorks being so, well, a pain in my bum, I should say, uh, when it comes to licenses, I I don't really get, I don't, well, I don't really feel the need, not the need, I don't feel like, I, 
I, I, I can feel, I can do it justice to release a file in SolarWorks and still feel that it's quite open because, yeah, try and get a hobbyist uh, to use SolarWorks without cracking the software. Yeah, there, there we go. Now that said, though, with Fusion 360, I've been down to use because of these licenses, and so this particular project was finally the one that I was able to go ahead and do that with, and I was fairly happy with it because um, there were some interesting things about Fusion 360 that I thought I thought was kind of weird, like the way you uh, assemble parts together, uh, the way you make them, is a different way to think about it. With SolarWorks, you are adding constraints, so if you want one side of a square to mate to another side of a square, then you basically select those services and they're and they're locked in place in you know whichever uh, axis you do it with with fusion 360 the concept is the other way around you have to picture it with the fact that everything's already constrained so whenever you make two things everything's constrained and you then have to decide what to release so it's kind of the other way around kind of the opposite of that uh, it took a while because the way they've implemented it's a bit weird in some cases but once you get your head around it and how they the, the ui works it was perfect i went out i, I it, it really did it didn't do that bad for me i just went in there did what i needed to do and off we went it, it, it took a while, little while to get used to the software but it wasn't too bad though anyway now that said um there was some interesting stuff that i quite enjoyed about the software um the importing tools was good i i, I i'm not a big fan when certain when softwares tend to be quite dependent of cloud uh, uh well any cloud services altogether uh future 360 has a built-in cloud you can use to share with other people and also make changes to the model within the internet or within the web browser but the software itself that you download, the actual software, is an installer for a computer. And they allow you to work offline, and they also allow you to save the files offline. So you can use the, the, the cloud services to uh, share with other uh, with other projects, but you can also export to a file format that anybody can use, STEP, or even their own uh, privatory uh, format that you can then reload again on the same software. So I was really happy with that, because you get the choice of being able to use cloud without being stuck with these anything in cloud so i was yeah i'm 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 happy with the way they implemented and i wish uh, a lot of cloud services out there had the same um well the same beliefs whoever basically or whoever uh convinced their uh sales to, to go down that route i you know i wish a lot of people did that i wish there were a lot more uh software engineers kind of going yeah well we do that but then we really should be thinking about this because you're gonna keep people like me I don't. I don't want to be stuck using the cloud services that may one day kind of failed and uh, all that sort of stuff. Anyway, so anyway, that's another topic for another day. So yeah, finished that. I'm not going to go into much detail with these the animated Santa Claus because I do. I am hoping to do a video, a dedicated video on that. Uh, but basically, it's it's it kind of to break down what uh, what's what makes that that Santa Claus anyway. It's so we got the electronic board from Ballport, which is project number nine. Uh, it's a board that uh, has a built-in infrared detector, and you can play audio from an SD card. Uh, not MP3s, but a for, it, you can load audio. Just bear that in mind. It's just it's raw binary that you can stick into an SD card, and it can play directly from that. And did have to make some changes to software, but it wasn't too bad anyway. Uh, that said, though, um, yeah, that so that so that kind of dealt with the software side of things. I was quite happy with that board actually because uh I don't know whether this was a design feature or if it was just kind of like the way SAR designed things. Uh but the uh driver for the infrared emitter, uh which was a MOSFET set up in a uh open collector, 
the output of that was uh, routed out to a pin to, uh, to connectors, I should say, uh, which means that you can drive other stuff, not just the infrared emitter. And I took advantage of that to drive the motor, the motor I needed to. And the motor that I happened to have cho- chosen uh, didn't need anything, any, anything special, didn't need any H-bridges or anything like that. It, it was well within the spec of that uh, MOSFET. Um, there were some uh, issues, like, for example, when the infrared is being used, actually used to detect things, then uh, you have to make sure that the motor can't be driven with that very brief signal. And then when the uh, no, when the software is no longer detecting anything in infrared, i.e. it's playing audio, I did kind of have to make changes to the software so that you actually wax, uh, full wax the um, motor, which unfortunately also means that the infrared is also on full wax, so it's all on continuously while the motor is running. But it's a compromise because I didn't really want to make any changes to the board. Hey, to be honest, if I was if I make if I was going to make any changes to the to the electronics, I might as well just design my own. I can do that quicker than just going through and just trying to bodge some design on that. So, I mean, to be honest, I got loads of development boards laying around in this lab anyway. There was plenty of other ways that I could have done other than just using um, uh, the board if I had to make any changes. So, yeah, it, it's one of those things anyway. Because to be honest, the board wasn't that complicated. It's just it's it's just got an infrared receiver uh, or transceiver. No infrared transistor mm, is that the right infrared photoresistor I think that's the right term and an infrared emitter all working within the same wavelength and that gets inputted to the um, to the microcontroller and then the output is um, then the microcontroller is driving a I think it's just an audio DAC um, and then reading from an SD card so it, you know it's stuff that I've done before just they're not open source. It's kind of annoying, really. But but with this particular board, it is all open source. It's open for anybody to make whatever they want to. And if you can always just take the design files from that and make your own changes. There is one caveat to the design file, and that is that it was implemented using Boltport's um, PCB mode, uh, which is a good software. I do en- I did enjoy playing with it, uh, as well as the fact that it's using Inkscape to route the, 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 the tracks. I did find that kind of interesting. And surprisingly liberating, uh, not liberating, surprisingly uh, comfortable to use. Uh, because if you've ever used any vector software to draw stuff, you you get what I mean when you try to draw a line and you can really create any curvature you want to, closer to what you actually want to do. So it, I quite I quite enjoyed it. Now, um, as I said, I didn't want to make any changes to that, so I was trying to f- more focus on the mechanical side of things. And there were a few things that I had to do. Like I, I bought, I had some motors already here from a previous project, the micro uh, robot that I put together. Um, and the motor that I was using was a three volt um, DC brushed motor that was, um, yeah, it was, it was basically had a built-in planetary gear setup, uh, which stepped down the motor down to 50 RPMs. And it was kind of small, quite nice. It's the sort of motors that are used on things like uh, telecommunication filters, uh, you know, when you, when you physically actually try to move a resistor pot rather than having to actually do that digitally. So it's, yeah, it, it's quite cool. Um, and quite cheap as well if you are buying it, for, if you do want to buy your, 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 yourself a few of those. Um, so I had that and I just had, to, I, 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 interesting enough, I actually have to step up uh, the gear ratios from 50 RPM to about 200 RPMs. Because the motion I was trying to create on the sound clouds wouldn't have looked realistic. Okay, I know it wasn't going to look realistic, but it wasn't going to look good. Um, so I needed to step that up and kind of had to use some worm gears, not worm gears, uh, a couple of um, spur gears to do that. No, it's not even spur gears, is it? It's just normal gears, just two mating gears. Um, I, you know what? I'm going to stop talking about the project now because 
it was it's not really that impressive i will do some videos and i will put it on youtube if anybody's actually interested in seeing that i actually did record myself both doing the design to printing and putting together so it might actually be more interesting for you to see videos of that than me trying to explain it to you on both on the podcast and in the video where i'm just waving my hands so hello now that said what else did i do oh that's it there was one other thing that I did while I was on my holidays that I've been dying to do for God knows how long now. Uh, I finally got the chance to try and play around with genetic algorithms. Now, it's not as impressive as I thought, originally thought when I was trying to learn, uh, get into it. Um, it. It's one of those things where there was quite a bit of media hype uh, a while back about it. Um, and then kind of suddenly dropped off, but it was still st- stuck to my mind. I actually can't remember when it was, when... Uh, genetic algorithms were, were big in the news. Um, mm. anyway. So, the thing is, uh, I find, well, when I was first at university, one of the things that I, I actively worked in and I was quite enjoying, uh, was things when it comes to robotics, were things like, uh, learning, uh, machines that can learn, neural network, fussy logic, image processing, that sort of side of things, you know, like deep learning, um, side of things. I was really getting into that sort of stuff. And when I left university, I did less of those sort of stuff and I ended up doing, focusing more on the embedded side of things for things like fuel truck and stuff like that. And so I didn't really get a chance to work in those projects anymore. So, you know, that being said, now that I finally started my own business and it's finally at a stage where it's nice and comfortable, I can finally start spending time on things that I've been dying to do, such as genetic algorithms, going back to neural network, and there's some really interesting stuff people have done with neural network that sent when I left university, when I first was in university, there wasn't really that much of a hype, and then when I now around this time, there's a lot more people actively playing with that, mostly because there's a lot more libraries already built for people to play with, that sort of stuff, so it's kind of interesting. So, uh, yeah, I finally got a chance to actually play around with genetic algorithm. I actually start writing my own and kind of, kind of playing around and couldn't get my head around it. And, and I was quite enjoyed it. I, I don't know if it's worth mentioning it, how it works or, you know what, I'll do it anyway. It, I do apologize if I end up kind of screwing up the description a bit. I'll try and keep things, well, yeah, I've not, well, wasn't really planning to do this bit anyway. So anyway. So what is genetic algorithm for anybody who is interested? It is something you can use to try and find a solution or an efficiency. And, and it, well, if you're trying to find, no, that's not even a great way to explain it. It's a great way for you to try and find, uh, uh, well, to find a solution within a set of data. So if you've got uh, some data that, that have particular patterns that are hard to try and search through, then you can use something like genetic algorithm to try and narrow down to the solution, to kind of search for the solution. So I guess you can say it's a search function, uh, well, a way to do that. Kind of a weird way to do it if you're trying to search for a set of data because it kind of relies you to kind of have some understanding what the solution needs to be to try and get a good understanding how to implement the, I guess you can say, the fitness. But I'll talk more about that in a second anyway. So the way it works is the genetic algorithm is modeled more like evolution. So you've got a set of nodes, which is like people, and then you are essentially going through the, you're essentially tasking each of those nodes or the people, population, maybe the best way to explain it because that's the correct term to use. You're basically tasking the population to go out and do something. And you basically created some sort of, each person or each node has some sort of DNA makeup or some sort of configuration that you that they that they rely on to try and make decisions to do and find your solution. And what you do is that at the end of a period, a generation, you then basically go through each of those nodes or each of those people within the po- population to try and determine who's been the most successful at finding the solution. They might not find the solution yet, 
but maybe they've gotten close to it. And what you then do is you take the ones that have been most successful and you cross their DNA or their configuration with the other pop- with the other nodes within the population to try and get them to be better. So you create new children within those old generation to create new children for the next generation to try and search for your solution. So you discard the old and you've created a new set of children and you send them off again another generation and try and see how well they succeed. And at the end of that generation, again, you, do, you repeat the same thing again. You check to see which of the nodes have been the most successful and then you then go and tell them, okay, you've been more successful. You get to be bred more often than the rest and therefore you, you know, your goodness or your makeup, your DNA that, are, that makes you be more successful at finding the problem gets, uh, gets crossbred to the rest. Now, uh, that's fine, but there, if you just do that, then you're actually just going to end up getting to a stale situation, because if you imagine a, if you imagine people constantly inbreeding and never introducing anything new to the DNA, then you are essentially going to end up getting the best of what you started out with in the first place. So your initial generation, your, your initial population, their DNA, if one of them happened to be slightly better than the rest, then you are slowly breeding everything to become that. So every time you breed or every time you crossbreed the DNA of the most successful to the least successful, you want to try and add some mutations, some random changes to their DNA. Not too much, but just just enough so that you're actually trying to increase the chances of, of them slowly evolving to a better solution. Now, imagine if, for example, you add a mutation that actually makes the node worse. Well, that one will end up getting less, will become less successful at finding the, 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 the final product and therefore won't be bred to the rest as often. Where if you were to introduce a mutation that actually happens to to have increased the better chance, or happen to increase the performance of a particular node, then that particular node, if it's if it's been more successful, they end up getting bred to the rest and introducing that mutation to everybody. So that therefore, or all the nodes, I should say, so therefore, it'll, the that generation will get a better chance, or the new generation will get a better chance of finding the product. And slowly but steadily, that happens. So every time your mutation is what slowly helping the system get to the final answer. Now, I probably should point out so things like the the way you judge how successful a node uh, has made it to the solution. That's a, that's called a fitness. The um, the way you mix the DNAs that's called a cross or your crossbreeding or cross function. Um, then the mutation station you're just adding random stuff. Uh, but there's a few issues. So there's actually quite a few problems that I, I actually found with this algorithm. First of all, I, I want to make it clear: genetic algorithm isn't what teaches the machine it isn't the thing that machines use to learn it is the thing that the machines use to try and find a better way to do something so it it would aid the machine for example if you wanted to use for that it would aid it to try and learn better uh, to find a better solution of whatever it's learning but it isn't the thing that machines actually are what makes it the learning machine so you usually you have to use genetic algorithms with other things for example with neural networks or or even um in the simplest way for example uh the simplest way to look at it is like if you got this traveling salesman issue if you've, if you've ever heard of that travel salesman problem is where you've got somebody who has to go and see multiple uh clients in a particular route and it needs to try and figure out the best route to get to all of them to minimize uh, waste of time and also to be able to hit all of them within a certain time period. So you code up the algorithm that tells the cell trial salesman how to get around. 
but trying to find the right fruit, then you will use the genetic algorithm to plan that out. So the thing that actually teaches the um, the child, the, the salesman, I guess in this case, how to get to, the, to, to all the clients in a particular route, it's that algorithm plus the genetic algorithm of selecting which route has been the most successful that gives it the learning, uh, um, well, the learning side effect, I would say. The, the, the thing that actually makes it learn is when you combine the, the two together. It uh, kind of sounds really weird. I do hope that that kind of makes sense. Now, there is quite a few issues that I found with the genetic algorithm. And one of them is that first, like I think I'm, I'm sure I mentioned it earlier, you have to have a good understanding of what the, or you have to actually have some idea of what the final product is going to be or the final solution so that you actually have a, a better chance of, of creating a fitness value or creating or judging how well a particular node has made it to the final answer. Because if you don't really understand the data, like for example, you decide to say, okay, I've got a bunch of data that I just logged from an uh, accelerometer and I don't really know what the signal is meant to look like when somebody is humming on the background when the sensor is on, for example. If you don't really know what that's supposed to look like, you've not even done the F, gone through the effort of actually looking at the signal to see what you're, you're expecting, then it's going to be hard for you to actually create, um, what, it's going to be hard for you to actually create a, fi- a fitness value or a, f- a fitness uh, code that judges how well the notes have been successful. Which brings up to the next issue that I found with the genetic algorithm, and that is when do you end it? When do you say stop? Because the thing is... Uh, the thing is, genetic algorithm isn't a replacement for exact answers. If you want to get an exact value for something, an exact answer, then you're better off writing code to search for that. You're better off writing uh, a code that you search for the data and actually extract the data for you. For example, if you got a database full of uh, data points from your uh, from your accelerometer, then you're better off writing code saying, okay, I am looking for... Uh, any acceleration that's greater than this. So there's really no point of you trying to write, to use genetic algorithm to search through all the data and try and find the best answer that way because genetic algorithms tend to give you more like a, 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 a scale of an answer, like the likelihood an answer being the, the right one. Like, for example, it's better at giving you numbers between 0 to 1, any numbers between that, Obviously, if you're using floating points, uh, so if the answer is within that range, then genetic algorithms are great for searching for stuff like that. But they're not so great when you can't just uh, get the exact answer. For example, is today? Um, I mean, like, there's no like, the efficiency that you're wasting on genetic algorithm is nowhere near. It, it's you're better off writing code that actually gives you an exact answer if you know what you're expecting at the end. So, for example, like if you um, if you're trying to teach a robot, well, actually, no, that's not really the best example. But I think um, hope, hopefully you understand what I mean. So, so which the point is the termination function. What what tells you that you finish your generation? When have you reached the final answer? That's the issue. If you don't know what the final answer is going to be, you're just going to get something that's close. You may not necessarily get the the, the actual best answer. You might get the closest answer. Maybe you got lucky. Maybe you've you decided to leave the, the your code running continuously until finally, after 10, 20 years, is finally found an answer that's that can't be any better than what anybody else has received. And yeah, there we go. So that's what I'm trying to get at. So the thing is, because with genetic algorithm, you're constantly going through generation after generation, creating a new population or new population based on the old, and you're kind of slowly doing that. It takes time. It's 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 not that efficient, and it's going to be a pain of you trying to get to the final answer. Sometimes, if the problem is easy, then it's not a problem. Sometimes, uh, the actual act of searching for the data is actually the fun bit, the, the the bit that you actually want to use. For example, there's a very good video on YouTube by Daniel, I think it's Schiffman, Schiffman, um, where he basically coded a 
it's more, well basically he had a code a code challenge and i put that on the show notes of the video for it and his code challenge was to try and create smart robots using genetic algorithm to teach them to get to the target although technically the genetic algorithm in this case was trying to find the best answer um it, genetic algorithm doesn't actually teach the way he set it up the genetic algorithm wasn't actually teaching the rockets to find the target they were teaching them to find a, a good path from an existing problem so if you actually wanted to send off the, the rocket going off in on its own to try and search it on its own like a mace um and the mace is constantly moving the target is constantly changing to places then you're probably better off rewriting the code but in his example it's very good you've you, your, your problem is you've got a rocket uh the, the the target is fixed you need to try and find the best path from a to b there's things going to be in the way that might make it harder for them and with his implementation of genetic algorithm, all the rockets slowly but steady started finding and verging to the correct, well, to, to a path that made sense. Now, I actually went ahead and, and tried to replicate his um, his code because there were a few things I wanted to try out and mostly because I, I was in the whole, you know, genetic algorithm is everything I want, I, should, I need to try kind of thing. Um, and the funny thing is, like, the, the way I had it set up is that I actually had it generating random, uh, ish, uh, random, um, blockades, uh, things that ended up blocking this, the, the rocket's path to get to a particular point, problem. And there were times that I was looking at the randomly generated map that I was thinking, actually, this looks impossible for those rockets to get from A to B, but then suddenly, yeah, they made it through and they, they got to the target in, in a way that I didn't expect it. And then when you dig into the code, you realize actually the reason why they were able to squish into a particular point is that there's just enough pixel um, distance between the two targets for the rocket to just about squish in there without causing um, uh, uh, without causing any collision between the uh, targets, uh, the non or the blocks. Uh, another place, the barricades. Uh, that's probably a better explanation. Anyway, enough about that. So, uh, I would definitely encourage you to try and give that a try. I will link into Daniel's uh, video so you can have a look at that if you are interested. It is JavaScript that is used uh, using the P5 library. Um, so, if you are wanting to get into JavaScript, this is probably not the one to get into. But he he does do a lot of good videos explaining JavaScript and P5 library for implementing um, animations and stuff like that on HTML5 and all that sort of stuff. So, I would definitely recommend giving that a try at least if you do have time whatever language you want to do try and implement some sort of genetic algorithm do have a look at his video even though might, even though you might not try javascript or it might not be the language you want to use at least on his video you're actually able to kind of figure out the fundamentals of how genetic algorithms work and i do believe he actually has written a book on the subject and that neural network and all that stuff anyway so if you are actually finding um machines that learn deep learn uh, deep learning and all that sort of stuff interesting sign up to his video anyway i mean i have anyway it's pretty good all right that is it for me uh enough with my mumbling i just realized that i've been talking for over 40 minutes or so so that's it for me if you want to uh, be social with me i am on twitter my username is optical worm for this podcast the username the twitter account for that is uh, uh hash lek uh do head over to youtube sign up to that if you want to see my face and the room i'm in uh i'm trying to make it look a little bit nicer than that um i'm still playing with the format anyway if you want to leave me any comments uh there are comments below on both on youtube and on the well whatever uh, on the site that i published this uh, podcast as well you can go over there and leave me comments uh, if you have any questions stuff like that you can always go to twitter that's a good place to uh, to speak to me oh and one final thing i i actually do publish this podcast the audio form i might start doing the video uh over hackaday.io um so if you are actually part of there don't forget to go over and subscribe to me and you get to see my other projects anyway uh that's it for me that's it for me so see you later bye